Hello, everyone. It's Matt Conlon here with Andrew Franz. It's 2022, and we are live from the Fluent headquarters. Um, this podcast is several years in the making. In fact, when we moved in here pre-pandemic, the initial vision was to have a creator studio, and instead we replaced it with desks. And those desks, of course, are vacant because everyone works from home. So fast forward three years, we are we are realizing our vision, and we are sitting here recording for the first time. Andrew, how are yeah, you? Yeah, well, you know, it didn't come without us buying a ton of fancy equipment first. We had a couple uh, hiccups along the way, but we're finally actually here. We have the best mics in the biz, um, <laughs> so we're ready to get going, I All think. Right, great. So real quick intros. I'm Matt Conlon, co-founder and chief customer officer at Fluent. Uh, we launched this business in 2010. It's been a wild ride filled with really exciting challenges, tons of opportunities, met tons of great people on the ride. And this podcast is all about meeting really interesting people, doing interesting things, and ultimately talking to people that are affecting change and, and hopefully doing some really interesting things in the world right now. Yeah, and I'm Andrew Franz, uh, co-founder of uh, Infuse, our new influencer platform actually under uh, the Fluent umbrella. So we actually launched in January, hope to bring a lot of cool creators that we're working with now onto the show. Um, really excited about talking from my journey all the way from investment banking to starting an influencer company. So um, really excited to get going. So I guess to kick it off, just want to get to know you a little bit better um, for the viewers. So uh, kicking it off with where are you from, kind of where have you lived? Um, give us kind of your geographical breakdown of your life. Oh, man, I've got a really basic story. Midwestern kid from uh, outside Detroit, town called Ann Arbor, Michigan, one of the best college towns in America, go blue. Um, and, you know, but you grow up in a college town, uh, it's it. It gets really small really quick, and I got that itch. I had to go out to the East Coast, moved to New York for college, went to St. John's University, Red Storm, uh, Big East basketball, and uh, I got bitten by the East Coast New York bug and never left. And uh, I've really only lived in two places my entire life. <laughs> what, what were your favorites like between the two? What do you miss about where you came from? And then, like, I guess, what do you like about New York and what's kept you oh, here? Oh, God. You know, it's funny because I, when I first moved to New York, you get, they, they, you've never felt this energy and this t intensity that I experienced when I moved here. And there's something about the, um, the motivation that you feel that you're, you're never doing enough, which could be uh, a little daunting at times because you're, but you're, there's this like inner drive. And when you go back to Michigan, you notice that spark isn't really there. And, but at the same time, we're in the concrete jungle. And I tell you, I dearly miss being able to easily just drive to a park, go kayaking or go on an easy hike. Everything is a schlep, right? You got to move out of the city, drive for an hour, or maybe go to Central Park and there's still thousands of people all around you. So I kind of miss the, uh, I miss the nature vibes. I miss having a yard. Do you think you'll stay in New York forever? You think? If it was up to me, we'd move, but my wife, I got kids now, we go to school in the city, so I'm, I'm here, man. I'm so, a New Yorker. So that, that brings up a good question. If you could drop all responsibilities and just move anywhere in the world, just solo dolo, where would you go? Wait, solo or with the fam? Solo dolo. Oh, man. Um, well, I'd probably have to spend a couple years in Europe, naturally. Naturally. The old world. Uh but if I were to think a little more domestically, I need at least a year in L.A., near the beach, doing the L.A. vibes. And then I would certainly also opt for some Austin, Texas time, yep. you know. So I was down there for South By. It's a good time. It is, there. right? Yeah, it you is. see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, so 
But it's tough, right? Because I can't think like that, right? I've got to think, okay, what would be the best place to move with two little kids and a wife? And I can think LA would still be good for solo version of me or family version of me. Yeah, so it fits both vibes. Sounds like LA might be next. And there's a thriving, <laughs> you know, digital tech ecosystem in LA too, which makes it even that much more attractive. Yeah, I've, I've been trying to convince my fiance to move out of uh, New York very unsuccessfully. Her family's, you know, in the Upper East Side and they have a place. So you you're know, beat. East. So you're, I'm, you're here. I'm beat, but I'm putting on my best sales pitch about well, LA. Well, the next, the next family get together, you stop by uh, my place too. Yeah, I will. Out in LA. No, no. <laughs> Upper East Side. Yeah. Um, all right, great. So kicking it back to you. So where are you from, Andrew? Yeah, so I'm originally from Richmond, Virginia, actually. Richmond. I basically was there until my high school years and moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. Why the move? Um, my dad's job. So both my parents are teachers. Um, my dad was the head of a school at the time, or I guess at the time he was the head of a middle school in Richmond, got the promo up to big, uh, mm. head of a- head Up of to a the school, bigs? Yeah, up to the big leagues, head of the whole <laughs> school. So um, so my whole family moved, yeah, out to North Carolina and Raleigh. Um, now my family actually lives in Charlotte. Um, went to school in Virginia- um, and then moved up to New York for my first job out of college and have basically been here and largely downtown ever since. So quite a, quite an array of different places that I've lived. As evenly split? Um, so I guess technically most, the, the longest place I lived anywhere was Virginia. But for me, like I lived there for like my childhood of which like a lot of it I don't remember, including yeah, like yeah. my one to 10 years or whatever. So I, lo- I usually call North Carolina home. Like, it was, like, where I went to high school. Like, So is that have- your favorite, then? Would you say that of all the places you lived, that's up there? I, I, I would say it, like, is feels like home to me. Like, for me, like, out being out in, the like, the cut in the middle of nowhere, but my, uh, very much unlike New York, is, like, home to me. Like, driving all the time, everywhere you go, you know, everything very spread out. Like, that's what I think of as, like, what growing up is like, because that's kind of, you know, how it was for me, whereas... I mean, I love New York now. I, I think it would be hard for me to live anywhere that isn't a big city now or like, you know, prop. I love apartment living. I love being able to walk places. I love being in the hustle bus. So much like you. I mean, it's 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 a bit addicting once you get get on it. You know, there was a time during the pandemic where I moved to New Hampshire and I was definitely very happy. Right. Doing the whole like there's trails, there's golf courses, there's pools like you can really get into that suburban life. But I didn't realize at the time uh, what I was missing. And as soon as I moved back to the city, there was that spark again. Yeah. And I, I don't think you recognize how much you actually lose by moving out of the city yeah. until you move back in. You're like, oh, wait, that's there was yeah. something that's absent. It's, it's such a complicated thing because it's like that drive that keeps you going, keeps yeah. you hustling, keeps you ambitious. Yeah. But at the same time, like there is something to be said for just being content. And like I see my family back in North Carolina and like, you know, people out at the lake and like, you know, they don't hustle and bustle and they seem like pretty happy, pretty and, happy and content as well. But for me, it's fun to hustle. But, you know, I, I also kind of sometimes it's good to step back and appreciate, sure. you know, people that are just chilling and they're like, you know, I'm happy. I don't have a ton, but like, you know, I'm out here and, you know, living my best life. And so if you could drop it all right now and move to your, you know, your desired place, would it be to stay in New York? Or uh, where else would you go in the country or the world so, for that matter? So like with fiance, with like, you know, budding responsibilities or like dropping it all? I want to hear both. Okay. So with, with responsibilities, I think LA, like doing this influencer thing now, like that's a really good place to be and um, being able to go to the beach like pretty much year round. And my favorite thing about LA, 
um, is when you're on the beach, you can actually also see the mountains. It's like the coolest vibe for me of all time. It's like you're on the beach and you get mountains. Like what's more scenic than that? So you should go to Rio then, right? So I've been to Rio actually. It's not the same vibe? It, it, so I, I was there probably when I was like 15 years old. Actually, my grandfather lived there for like a third of the year. Um, pretty much like for the last 50 years or so. So. What? Yeah, he, he I, I'll talk to talk about him at that, some point that's, on that's here. That's a story he, for another day. Yeah, that's what a story for another day. He, he had it figured out, though. He was Chicago for the summer, Rio for, like, you know, the in-between period, yep. and then Palm Springs for the winter. So kind of maybe maybe inspired by him in 50 years or so. I get the Chicago Palm Springs, the Rio thing. Let's unpack that later. Yeah, okay. we'll unpack that later. All but right. with without responsibilities, I would say like London or Barcelona, like just go over to Europe. I, I don't know Spanish, but I love Barcelona. Uh, there's a big conference happening in July in Barcelona, and uh, we will be there. Yeah. So you, Will you be there? Oh, or? yeah. Okay. I'll be there. All right. We'll and uh, Ibiza is a short flight away, so I might be making a stop over. So yeah. anyways, let's keep it moving. Yeah. So so I guess I, I got another one for you. Yeah, yeah, um, di- diving back in just to like back in the day, what, what were some of like your most vivid childhood memories and why do you think those stuck with you? Oh, man. Um, you know, one that always jumps out to me is uh, <laughs> I had this like uh, hustler's mentality as a youth and I vividly remember going to um, Sam's Club in Ann Arbor, Michigan, growing up with my parent or with my mom and uh and asking my mom for uh a loan so she could buy me a bunch of uh so I could buy a bunch of airheads and Twix and then taking those to uh fifth and sixth grade classes and selling candy in between classes. And that was that was my first like entrepreneurial itch. But actually going back further, the coolest um one of the cooler memories I have growing up was I went to Catholic school all my life. And so when you go to these private schools, um, fundraising is key, right, to help subsidize some of the education. And we had this one big uh, um, candy sale, our biggest fundraiser of the year. And from the age of like, I don't know, maybe second, third grade on, I would I would work the neighborhood and sell candy door to door. And maybe that's where the high school uh, or the <laughs> middle school uh, itch came from. But but I, I started getting really good at it, and I, I started to figure out an angle where I could uh, talk to business owners and use it. At, they could sell these as Christmas gifts, and it was actually my dad that he started buying it, and I used that to start to sell to other business owners. And uh, I started winning, and I, I would win every year. And it came with a limo ride and four tickets to Cedar Point, which is probably uh, the low-key, littest amusement park in the country. It's in Ohio, so no one really ever goes there, but it's better than any of these six flags. But you get a limo ride. So as a second grader, I still remember, like, getting this limo, and it was just like uh, Macaulay Culkin in in Home Alone, where you're, like, (laughs) getting by yourself with a large cheese pizza. And that that vibe always sticks out to me, and I think there was just – I got to scratch that itch very young, and I just was constantly chasing that from a young age. And then you never stopped selling after that, I never stopped. I had to keep (laughs) growing and building and making connections, and and – it's, it's carried me a long way. So. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I guess uh, some other, what books have you kind of read over the years and like how have those impacted you? What are your favorites? Oh, um, I love this question. Um, so I'm a sucker for the biographies and autobiographies. Books like, you know, Elon Musk's book from a few years back um, and or Shoe Dog, Phil Knight. I love a good origin story. I am such a sucker for an origin story and hearing how somebody 
came from nothing or came from little means and created something incredible. And not just wealth, but like created an impact on society and on other people around them. And so I'm, I absolutely love any book around that topic. And so like, you know, one of the other books that jumps out to me as one of my favorites over the past, you know, decade plus is Outliers. And it kind of dissects uh, what makes for the outliers in society, right? Those people that are better athletes, that are uh, better academics, that are more successful for one reason or another. And, it, and it's, it's really simple. It's a 10,000 hour rule, right? And that always sticks with me. It's like, you know, I, I'm pretty good at some things and it's mostly because of repetition and practice. And it, it just goes to show you that like, you can be absolutely incredible at anything and you can become that outlier in your respective field through uh, the 10,000 hours. Yeah. Are, are you a good reader? Like when do you find time to read and get, get so that in? I have a confession. I've really fallen off. Um, I used to be a really good reader and I haven't been able to find something that's like really stuck with me. And I, I'll pick up books, I'll read the first chapter and then I'm over it. And I have yet to find in the last couple of months something that really sparks my interest. Yeah, so I, that must mean you've been watching some TV. If so, what are your kind of favorite shows um, oh, that you've been, been checking out? I got to tell you, we've been on a pretty deep, dark... Uh, um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> we've been watching a lot of Holocaust movies recently. I don't know if it's just appropriate, but this is, for whatever reason, we've gone through Schindler's List, The Reader... Uh, the pianist and all these, and it's just I don't know why. And then I always have to flip it to Always Sunny in Philadelphia after to yeah. like get what, the vibes. What, up what do you think is like interest you about that historical time in the world? I guess it's just so shocking. Yeah, it's such a shocking period, and it, it was. It, and what's wild is it was not that long ago. Yeah. There's still people that went through that um, that are still living today, and you're talking about an event that happened in some people's lifetime. Yeah. And I I think it's just mind blowing that it's happened. I think part of it too is like reflecting on the war that's, you know, happening in Ukraine right now and how quickly that could escalate to something much greater and far more destructive. Yeah. And um and I think if we don't take a look at the history and what and how shortly ago we were in World War II and all the devastating things that happened during that period. And so I think it's partially the times right now and also, my wife is on a weird kick on that top subject matter. Yeah, so. no, it's true, though. I think you have to look at history and kind of learn from your mistakes. And there's, like, eerily similar themes going on right now yes. in the world. Um, so it's probably timely for people to look back on history and, yeah. and kind of take some lessons from where we went wrong in the past. For sure. So I'm going to flip it back to you on this one. So talk to me about uh, some of your earliest childhood memories. Yeah, so actually, when you were talking, a, a funny memory came to mind. Uh, very not entrepreneurial, but just a hilarious memory I have with uh, my older brother of actually when I discovered Santa. Um, I must have been, I, I don't know what the right age was, somewhere between five and 10 years old. Um, and we were at... Uh, my grandfather's actually out in Palm Springs for Christmas. And uh, my older brother actually knew at the time that Santa didn't exist, but like he wanted like me to learn for myself. So basically we had this like whole elaborate plot where we actually duped my parents. We were out in the guest house. We put like fake, you know, pillows in the bed. And like when they checked on us, like they totally didn't notice. And we were like out with binoculars behind a cactus out there. And then like all walkie talkies, like at one point my mom came back and like I turned on the shower and locked the door and was like, hey, my brother, he's in the shower. Like, and then I ran back outside and then it was just like for me. And then eventually, like I saw like, you know, my parents with the, you know, garbage bag of gifts, putting him in. And that's ultimately how I learned. 
But Wait, uh, you spied on your parents? I spied on my parents. You spied on, on Santa. I spied on Santa, and it ended up being my parents. Um, mm. So hopefully this doesn't. Ho- hopefully we have an old enough podcast uh, demo oh, where this isn't on, ruining <laughs> Christmas for anyone. But I, I think for me that was just. It's funny because it's one of my earliest memories of like just being on an adventure and like you know like the adrenaline that comes with like what if we get caught like Love you that. know and, and then it all like kind of panned out and like we finessed which was it was a really cool memory. Sweet. Talk to me about, uh, you know, as I just said, I'm looking for inspiration. I need a really good book. So any any recommendations? Yeah. What have you been reading? So I, I like a lot of the entrepreneurial books that you talked about. Um, like Elon Musk's book was great. Shoe Dogs, I actually really, really liked. One one kind of outside of that genre is Sapiens. Um, oh, yes. I started reading that book and like it just, you know, it really gets the thoughts going. And it's just like so well written and thorough. It's just, uh, uh, it's an amazing read about kind of, I guess evolution overarching, but there's a bunch of different segments within it that talk about like all sorts of theories that are like pretty watertight. Like, you know, he does a very good job in depth of kind of saying like, this is like most likely what happened. So the collective myth, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so, so, so that one's up there. I like you, I've been struggling to find time to read. I, I used to read on my commute on the subway. Like I just put it on my phone and flip through, um, and I would crush books kind of that way. Did and you read Homo Deus? You read the second one? I have not read the second one, but There's I have There's a third you? one too. I read the Blinkist version. I kind of did, okay. did the cheat code just to because I needed to see. I didn't have. I, I think before I like find another book to read, I need to like find a way to like get reading back into my life because like I, re- I really lost it when I stopped commuting, which is great. I mean, I walk here now and like for a long time it was work from home, but um but I need to figure out where to where to slot that back, in, back into my life and then and then find some good books. Can I tell you a random thought? But I I made a commitment this week to sign up for masterclass, as maybe that would be this like the spark I needed to get back into learning mode. Yeah, have you signed up? I almost did, but the problem is the business content down there is pretty limited. There's yeah. a lot of art content, creative writing, how to play guitar, how to do video editing. There's only pieces. I mean, the business content is like top notch, though. It's, yeah. It's, what, uh, what about trying to do something artsy or like a little left brain and like that might unlock some business stuff, even though, like indirectly? I like where your head's at. That's <laughs> yeah. really smart. I think I'm going to do that. Try to learn an instrument or something. And probably while you're vibing out, you'll have some crazy ideas. All right. That's, this, that's a good strategy. Yeah. All right. Great. Um, so... Last one for you right now. So what have you been watching right now? What's the either favorite stro- show or what's the your top streaming service of choice? Yeah, so I, I've been watching, um, I guess in terms of shows, I've been watching Ozark. Um, oh, yeah. I actually, this is this is a good, I, I watch a ton of like the trashy love shows like Love Island and Too Hot to Handle. I, I, I was uh, living with my sister during quarantine um, down in North Carolina and she started throwing them on like, you know, on Sundays and we were just laying around and I totally got hooked. It's, you can just like watch it, nap during it. It's, it's just like, you know, massages your brain, makes you a little dumber, but you know. I love that. <laughs> um, so I've watched them those too and <laughs> it's good entertainment. All right. So flip into the business front real quick. I have a couple, you know, I want I want to hear more about the origin story, how you came from, uh, Boy from Richmond, Virginia, Raleigh, and then I want to I want to transition over to your first job. Yes, and, and what what were the key learnings that came out of that experience? Yeah, so I'll, I'll walk you through kind of like a couple of what I would think of as my first jobs. Um, my my first official job was a uh, camp counselor um, at my dad's school. Cool. Which, so I, I did that for for three summers, um, which was like one of the 
coolest jobs in my life. I actually found it very like um, fulfilling to work with kids and like, you know, me being like tall and like I was very interactive with them. They would all like jump on me and like it was just. So you're always tall or do you have this crazy growth spurt? I've always been tall for my age, okay. um, but it, at the time, I guess I was like high school, early college. Oh, yeah. Got, so already, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was already up there. Um, <laughs> so I, that, that was my first one. I, I guess my first like real job where like you know I was making any money was uh, actually over on Wall Street, um, doing investment banking at Deutsche Bank. So wait, so from camp counselor to investment banking. Yeah, yeah. So I smooth I kinda, transition. Yeah, this, you'll you'll hear you know my my transitions have been you know pretty uh pretty pretty hard pivots, but uh, but <laughs> yeah. Good. So so I was I was over at Deutsche Bank. Um, for anybody listening, like I I think there's a lot of pros and cons of doing investment banking. Um, I I always say I'm happy that I did it, and I'm even more happy that I never have to do it again. Um, but I think it does give you really good business acumen. Um outside of like the general toxic culture, like it's really cool experience. They just like completely poison it with just this like insanely toxic culture of, you know, stopping on the people at the bottom of the totem pole. But what I've gathered from that ecosystem is you get great hard skills, right? Yeah. You learn how to use all the basic business programs, Excel and PowerPoint, you're great at delivering, but like, how do you embrace like the good part? Like what would you do differently to create a, a healthier culture? Because I think a lot of businesses could benefit from the hardworking talent that comes out of, uh, you know, a lot of the banks and yeah. uh, consulting firms is like next to none, right? Yeah. There's a lot of really good talent, but I've heard this many, many times that the culture itself is, is, toxic. The biggest thing, like, like anything, it starts at the top, right? And I think just like simple, like thank yous or, Hey, I see you improving. You're doing a really good job. Like just the small things of like showing appreciation that like the person that's doing the work is in fact a human being. And like, <laughs> you know, they're not just a robot. Like, you know, there, there was times where I'd go like hand deliver books at two in the morning to a, like an MD who was flying out for a flight. And like, you know, they don't even, they, I get nothing from them. Ghosts, they go to the meeting. They don't tell me how it goes. Like, so like, just, I, I think it's like, even as simple as the small things of just being like, Hey, like, I really appreciate you putting in the work and grinding and getting this to me. Like, it sounds really simple to fix. It's it's really simple to fix, but like I, there, there's some, it's a cultural thing, right? Like it's just not. not Let me good. ask you the flip of that. How do you get, um, a really good culture to do better business? Right, because I think there's that balance, right? It sounds like there's certain environments where I really stress the the really hard work and the culture's weak, and then there's really great culture where everyone's vibing, but sometimes the work can suffer. Yeah. How do you how do you strike that balance? I I, I think it, this sounds you know simpler said than done, but like finding really good people and then you don't have to manage them as much, because um, I I think Facts. The, the the banking kind of manages you into like grinding it out no matter what. Like if you're lazy or you're less uh, ambitious or, you know, inspired than someone else, like they're going to grind it out of you by just, you know, the toxic culture. But I think if you can find, you know, and then I think on the flip side, a really great culture might have people that will take advantage of the great culture and not really like work or like, you know, take shortcuts. But I think if you can find, I mean, again, easier said than done, but if you can find good people and then basically like not really manage them, just kind of be like, go crazy. Um, I think that's where you find like the holy grail. Yeah, for sure. I interested on your thoughts on that one as well, actually. Um, yeah, you know what? I think it's really tricky because once you get on that consulting path, getting someone off that path into a better environment can be a little tricky. So it's really about, um, I think painting that like the, the career progression inside of the consulting and investment firms is very clear cut. I think the, the challenge you have in a lot of the entrepreneurial environments uh, is that 
it's not always a clear path, right? I mean, you start there, you start as an analyst, then you get to move up. And eventually you become uh, a partner, a managing director, and it's very in an well exact defined. Cut amount of years. Exa it's like everything yeah. is tight. Accomplish this in X amount of years, and you moved here. You move into the the broader business world, especially in startup land. It is it is a very windy, bumpy path, and a lot of times it's not well defined. And so there's only a certain type of person that's comfortable operating in that gray. Where it's like, I know if I work hard, I'll move up, but it's not clearly defined. And I think that's the challenge that a lot of startups have to work through is how do you create that career progression uh, and make it very, um, make make sure that people are clear on what they have to accomplish to move up the ranks and upskill and, and move up and take on more responsibilities. So it's not easy. It's something we're still working on today, but that's to me the key is how do you bridge that gap and make those really hard workers that want the, everything to be documented and written down and make sure that uh, you do some of that while also embracing what makes a startup great, which is like that fluidity, yeah. that, that agility that helps you respond to opportunities quickly and not be so rigid. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Um, I guess uh, flipping it back to you, what, what was your first job um, and kind of, I guess, what, what were your jobs up until Fluent? Um, first formal job outside of a uh, hustling candy, as I talked about earlier, um, was, uh, actually working for my dad as well. Um, uh, my dad, uh, runs a, uh, a, a advertising marketing business. And so if I didn't have sports after school or summertime, I was, uh, working in the warehouse and, uh, for a while I was, uh, we did photo shoots for General Motors. And so we'd have these cars sent in and we were creating all these catalogs that were sent out to dealerships around the country. And so I was the, um, uh, <laughs> I was the shine boy. Is that a, I don't know if that could say that word, but I was the, you know, I was the guy, uh, I was shining up the rims. I was shining up, you know, I was cleaning up the, uh, the, uh, the windshields and making sure it was good for the photo shoots. And, but then I'd have just just doing like great work, and I absolutely loved that role. It was so fun, and I got to interact with adults at a young age. And so I think going back to like that ten thousand hours rule, like when I went into the workforce, I still remember this. I had leaps and bounds more experience of interacting with adults at a professional level than any of the peers that were entering work at the same time. And so it really set me ahead because I was I was operating at a at a different level. But after that, I you know during college, I had a ton of incredible jobs that. Uh, I think taught me a lot, including I worked for a moving company. So I was like, you know, I got my CDL driving the big truck and I was uh, uh, loading up houses and unloading them. And that was incredibly motivating. I was doing door to door sales at one point and learning, you know, learning really how hard like the true sales work of going door to door, really challenging work. Don't recommend it, but it's a great starting point for anyone who's interested in that kind of career. But eventually um, got into digital advertising right out of school. I've, I interviewed for about 15 different companies um, from ad agencies to publishing companies and marketing firms and all of them, I wasn't the right fit. I was either, I was over-experienced or under-experienced and I finally got a, a shot in digital advertising at an early performance marketing company called Innovation Ads and it was, um, it was serendipitous to say the least. It was 2005 and digital marketing was just starting to take shape. Um, Google was adjust or was about to buy DoubleClick, right? So this is very, very early on. Uh, Facebook was still only for uh, college kids. You know, Snap, Twitter, TikTok were a twinkle in their founder's eyes, right? So this was like really good time to get into the space. And, um, and I learned a lot, right? It was a perfect time. And, and this was back when uh, LinkedIn didn't exist. So to get in touch with people, you had to call them. 
and people still answered calls back in 2005. So you were calling up the VP of Coca-Cola and sometimes they'd answer and you'd, you'd have to then talk to them. And so it's just a really interesting time to... What, what was your elevator pitch at that time? You know what? I remember looking at a script because I didn't quite know it, but I had to look down at my script as I was on the call and I'd like have to try and make it sound natural as I was learning this pitch. But it was basically... Uh, are you interested in digital advertising and specifically acquiring new customers? And and it was a interesting time because they would always ask, well, can I see what sites you're going to generate? Oh, no, it's blind network. Uh, can I can I test like a small amount? No, $20,000 minimum buy. And there's always a question. It's always a no. So if you got a sale, it was really challenging to get a sale, but you felt like a hero. And and the, the other wild part and the, the gauntlet of those days was it was a, it was a boiler room my first job. So you had to make 150 phone calls a day or three hours of talk time and they record it. And if you didn't hit those numbers, you weren't allowed to sit down the next day. You had to stand. They take away their, your chair. And, and the best part was you're young and you know, usually going out at night and um, they would make uh, salespeople pay for the Red Bulls unless you closed a deal that week. And so it was just like, I don't have any money. Like you want me to pay for Red Bulls or unless I close a deal? So there's this you know, the pressure was, was high. There was some hustler culture in your for first job, I guess, as well. Correct. Um, yes. So I guess mo moving into kind of a, a really cool topic, I guess, what gap did you see in the market when, I guess, coming out of that other performance mark company that, I guess, made you see there was an opportunity to start Fluent? And I guess, how did those early, early days kind of look like and, and go? Yeah. So um, there was a big um, aha moment in the first couple years in this industry in that, um, I recognize that the companies that were scaling and growing um, had something unique about them. They controlled their own media. They had a, uh, an interaction with the consumers. They knew who the consumers were. They, they knew more about what they were in market for. And as a result, they could provide better solutions and better results to their advertising partners. Um, and I think the, the biggest aha was you have to have control of some sort of product, whether that's an ad serving solution, whether it's your own websites, whether it's your own apps. And if you're just in the business of, you know, there's, there's good ad networks out there. There's good like brokerage companies out there. But what, what, I, what I learned was um, if you really want to grow a scalable operation, you have to control the media and you have to have a relationship with consumers. And if you put, if, if you lack the consumer centricity, you can, you can grow, but there's a limit to that growth. And I think that what, what we observed, what I observed early on was that without it, you lack the control. And if you lack the control, uh, you can't always uh, deliver the best quality. You can't deliver the best outcomes. And so the big learning was when we were going through the first few years before we started Fluent, we learned that you have to, you know, the whole concept was, um, field of dreams, if you remember that movie from back in the day. But if you build it, they will come. And so the early thesis was, let's build out an ad-serving solution on that we can embed on publisher websites and we'll build something that engages with millions of consumers. And if we build that, the advertisers will come. Makes sense. And I, it worked. I, I think I see a lot of that in the influencer game now. You know, I think that uh, everybody knows they want to get into it and knows that it's, you know, one of the most engaging channels out there, but it's how, how do you control more of the experience? How do you, you know, kind of build it and then, you know, have, have the advertisers come. Yep. Um, yeah, no, it's a really good point. Um, so 
talk to you know let's go a little deeper on influencers so when you think about that category you know what what's next for the creator economy and and also like what industries do you think are are going to be like are, are going to you know there's obviously been a lot of adoption there's a massive exploding marketplace but like who's going to win it win the largest and what industries are going to be most impacted for better or for worse yeah i i think of I mean, I'm a big, big on Web3 right now. So, I mean, I, and I include influencer and kind of the creator economy as part of that. So I, I think that community building is like, you know, it's the biggest thing right now out. And, and community can be, you're a creator, you have a TikTok presence, you have a ton of followers that, you know, follow you and like feel like they know you and are really interactive with you. And then when you say, hey, I actually really support this product, they go out and buy it. So it's like highly engaging. I think there's a whole level of like discord communities out there as well that are, you know, based around anything big, big ones right now are around like different crypto coins and stuff. But that, that again is like, it's about the coin and, you know, they, they try to bump the value of it, but it's even more so about like having an outlet where like you feel like you have friends in a community and you can bounce stuff off each other. So I think anybody that can build a community right now, that's like almost like 101 of like starting a successful business. Cause then you can kind of have your community tell you what to build for them. So I think, you know, one, one thing I'm trying to do on the influencer side is build an army of influencers. And, and we have some products out of the gates, like our app that we think will be really helpful in helping them monetize. But I think I, I almost just want to build that community and say, Hey guys, what do you guys need help with? Yeah. Um, let me build it. So I think Web3, I, I think crypto, I'm, I'm still very bullish on, you know. But the talk, what do you mean by Web3, right? Like, so what what in particular within Web3 is most interesting to you? I, I think prob the creator economy, I, I think, is the, the most interesting to me. I think all the metaverse stuff is stuff that I'm still trying to wrap my head around. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think there's huge implications to, I mean, realistically, you know, someday when I have kids, like, I think it's very likely they'll largely live in the metaverse, which will be, you know, VR goggles and all that stuff. So I think fi figuring out how to kind of take advantage of that. I mean, you can see how much social media took over over the last 10, 15 years. Like, you know, when you were in middle school, like you just kind of hung out with your friends and like, you played know, baseball. played baseball and went and knocked <laughs> on their door and was like, Hey, like you want to, you want to hang out. And now like, you know, there's this whole thing about social media, everybody knowing everybody. And there's, there's a ton of pros and cons that come with that. Um, I think being a kid nowadays would be really hard with all the social media pressure. I mean, it's, it's hard to be a kid, you know, back in the day as well. So, but I, I also think it, uh, it, it is really cool and it, it makes people really aware of the world. Like it kind of opens up, you know, your universe to a lot more than just, you know, your town yeah. or your neighborhood or whatever. So I agree. Um, I, I think the creator economy and yeah, you know, web three is a huge word, but I think within that, you know, the influencer space and, and advertising, I guess, within that. Okay. So I need your hot take on something. So there's a lot of rumblings right now about the U.S. entering a recession, right? We had economic downturn in, in the first quarter. It looks like we're trending towards that in the second quarter. Does the creator economy get, how does it get impacted if we enter a recession? Yeah, I think that um, it'll hurt like a lot of like venture, more venture backed companies, which a lot of create, like, you know, a lot of creators promote, you know, these up and coming companies that have a bunch of venture money that are pouring that all into user acquisition. Um, so I think there might be a bit less budget, I guess, for, for creators broadly. Um, I think that there's an opportunity to move then into like the performance marketing side where like you're back automatically backing out ROI for the advertisers. Um, Right now they're pouring in branding dollars like crazy. And I'm sure to some degree it does work. Um, but I, I think that there's probably a lot of empty spend there. Um, so I think 
that area will benefit, whereas kind of the branding area might might get hurt a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I guess that's my my super high level take on how how it will affect uh, creators. I, I think that it's an industry with so much tailwinds that it'll be resilient through um, the, the downturn. Like I think that creators in that whole space will continue to grow despite kind of the the overall downturn. You know, it's interesting you say that because I I lived through the last massive recession two thousand seven, eight, and a little bit carried over into nine. And I was in performance marketing at that time. And similar to what you just said about the influence, there was so much tailwinds going to digital that if you didn't read the news, I remember this distinctly, you would not, if you were just sat inside the walls of our company at that time, you'd have no idea there was a recession. And primarily because so much of the money was shifting from offline, newspaper, out of home, radio, TV, over to digital, that although overall spend did decline during that period, uh, it all flooded, what, what was left all flooded to digital and it never actually went back. And I think you might be right that influencer has such tailwinds that it might be enough spend, that overall spend will come down, especially the branding dollars, but enough is gonna pour into influencer that it should be really resilient. And I think you got a great point too that the companies that have focused on growth at all costs are gonna learn a very hard lesson. And you've seen like Sequoia's come out and uh, Y Combinator's come out and they've tried to have a very hard lesson for all their portfolio companies said, focus on profit, uh, focus on cash preservation, uh, cut costs where you can because it's looking like uh, rocky waters ahead. And, you know, I think there's this whole mentality shift. Money was so cheap over the past couple of years that you, it was really easy to raise capital. It's really easy to invest into growth, even if uh, you were spending $2 to make $1, which you know, a lot of companies learn the hard way, <coughs> Peloton. But, you know, you think about like where we've shifted to, the big companies that have focused on profit and are have a keen eye on uh, driving efficient ROI through their marketing spend are the ones that are going to continue to spend through this period, right? So the companies that have a strong performance marketing engine, strong performance marketing teams, uh, will ultimately persevere. Yeah, definitely. So I guess zooming out from the industry, like a little bit more in what, what companies out there do you look up to, I guess, generally, and which do you think will be particularly resilient in, in a downturn like this? Companies, industries that I think will be really resilient. So we'll first talk about the companies. There's some categories. So this is, this is pretty wild. You saw Walmart and Target had uh, put some pretty, they've, forecasted really difficult times ahead. Consumer spending is going to be down because the cost of the dollar or the, you know, the dollar doesn't go as far as it did for at one point. So they've both kind of forecasted that uh, the rest of this year is going to be challenging. However, Dollar General came out and absolutely crushed the last quarter, right? So the, 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 the dollar stores and, and the QSRs, so the fast, fast food industries are going to be incredibly resilient during this time. That, that would be some, some of the industries I think are going to do quite well is those that uh, help consumers save a couple dollars and focus on, um, you know, uh, they're helpful for consumers that don't have a lot of cash. And I think those are the businesses are going to do, a gr do really well. Of course, there's the high end of the market, which is going to be relatively uh, safe, I would think. But the, the, you, the thing about companies that um, I've always looked up to um, <laughs> For better or for worse, or performance marketing, customer acquisition businesses, you know, putting 
putting like, you know, Apple, Google and all those incredible companies aside, you know, I've always looked up to Red Ventures and, you know, they're, they're one of the best examples of a company that provides real value to consumers and to their customers. And I think the ability to, to uh, take um, a product end to end uh, is really quite intriguing. And so I think about Red Ventures as like a, a great example of um, a company has done things right. And, you know, they provide a great service. And uh, I've always had a, um, I've always looked up to that. And I think, you know, there's, that's a good model. Yeah, with, with companies that are successful like that, what, what do you think, how do they track goals, set goals um, to make sure that they're, you know, being the most effective or, or I guess them or what have you seen in, in doing that to make sure that you're all, rowing all in the same direction and in an efficient way? Um, from my perspective, you have to always start with the end in mind. And, you know, this goes for any relationship or partnership that you're trying to create. But if we are in sync on, you know, if, it, if it's a customer, for instance, and we understand the value of a new customer, and let's take an example like, um, I don't know, home service project. You know, that project might be worth $1,000. And if we start with that, the value of that project and that customer relationship is worth $1,000, we have $1,000 of allowable to work with. And so how do we go out to, to create a solution using influencer, using, you know, digital media marketing strategies, using product to back into and drive a thousand dollar customer. Um, you know, by starting with the end in mind, making sure that our goals are fully aligned with our client, we can create really great outcomes. Right. And I think that to me is where, where you start. And if, you know, if, if you don't establish good KPIs, key performance indicators right up front, and there is not good alignment on, both the lifetime value of that customer, the customer acquisition cost, it's really difficult to be successful. Yeah. You can get lucky, but it's not going to be repeatable. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's a great point. I guess. So, so winding things down, um, how, how do you unwind after work and like, what do you do kind of to keep yourself in a good mental, mental health spot? Um, I really like to spend time with the kids, right? You start to scratch that creative itch. Like we talked about earlier, <laughs> you know, Playing with magnet tiles, uh, reading reading uh, kids books with the, with the kiddos, um, or uh, you know the the latest craze in our house is Sonic. You know I love that Sonic came back because it's forced me to go tap back into my childhood. And in fact, I even downloaded uh, Sonic on uh, and started playing Sonic again <laughs> because it's literally been on a repeat in our house recently. But like, there's something really quite nice about. Um, you know, doing some of those simple activities, playing softball with your kids or, you know, playing magnetiles is just uh, enlightening. Yeah. For, for me, I think the biggest thing is working out. Um, you know, I, I was an athlete basically through most of my life. Um, and I think waking up the morning, like punishing myself through a hard workout. But what about the end of the day, though? Because I get that to start the day. You want to start uh, with your, on your best. Yeah. So, so after, uh, um, how do you unwind? I, I usually will like go just sit on the couch, play a couple games of FIFA, you know, get the competitive itch out. <laughs> um, and then cooking dinner. I really like to like cook. I feel like it's like a good mm. wholesome activity. What's the, what's the go-to meal? I, so it's a, I, I actually have kind of like a regiment, um, of, of things. It's so I keep it simple, but I usually will have like a salad on Monday, taco Tuesday, Duh. Wednesday, I'll make like pasta or something. Thir Thursday, a lot of times we might, we do something with work or like go out. Um, so yep. I, I usually will keep, you know, Thursday slash Friday pretty flexible. My, but Monday through Wednesday is locked. Mo Monday through Wednesday is pretty locked. And then if I'm in town, me and the fiance will do to Italy, you know, the nice uh, restaurant, get some cheese, some wine, you know, maybe a steak Money. and just, you know, just 
just vibe out, chill Love out. That. So that's 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 a my favorite way to end the week. I you guess you mentioned fiance. When, when's the when's the wedding? The wedding is in August up in uh, Terrytown. So Fun. okay, so two months of uh, of bachelorhood. Two months of bachelorhood, and then the old ball and chain. All right, great. <laughs> Uh, all right, so uh, we're going to close out this this uh, this first session here, but uh, thanks to all the listeners, thanks to all the viewers. Um, Andrew, great great speaking with you today. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural Fluent Talks, and, and look forward to, uh, to more to come. Yeah, thanks for uh, to Matt for, for hosting with me and excited for you know some great guests to be on the show and kind of run them through some of these crazy questions as well. So sure. thanks, everybody, for listening. All right, thank you. Subscribe to the latest episode of Fluent Talks at FluentTalks.co. That's FluentTalks.co.